Welcome to the Out of Privilege podcast with Dr. Byron Burkhalter, where we will talk about issues of racism, white privilege, and the role they play in current affairs. We take an historical and sociological look at various issues and how they have laid the foundation for the systemic racism that the United States in particular is battling today. I'm Genevieve Haldeman, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we talk about what it means to take a sociological approach to addressing racism in corporate environments and how that differs from what a lot of individuals and organizations are trying to do to create a more inclusive environment. Take a listen and let us know your perspective in the comments. Byron, so as we're working with companies, uh, we're often asked what makes uh, the work that we do different uh, from other uh, consultants that are out there, other organizational consultants and advisors. Um, You come to the topic of race with a very different perspective, and you come to an understanding of what needs to happen in these organizations very differently than what others are doing. Talk about how, how you think about the concept of race, where people are today, and what needs to, to happen in order to change that. Um, well, I would say that, that my perspective is sociological as opposed to um, psychological. And I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But really, I think our primary job is to bring leaders in communities and organizations um, up to date with how race is presented. Um, You know, whenever I think about um, how to do things, I'm, I'm always going back to my childhood. And for my mom, she had these lovely, perfectly coordinated polyester suits with this seam sewn into the middle of them. I can see them right now. Um, I would say they were somewhere popular, somewhere around 68, 69, maybe, maybe 70. Um, she looked good in them. And that's really where her fashion sense stopped. I mean, she pretty much wore them forever. Like I suspect I will wear blue jeans. I think a lot of us came to our understandings of race where we were good enough people with this understanding, perhaps forward thinking. Um, but in any case, fine. We could have conversations about race and everything was okay. And over the years, if you have jobs, you know, and race is not your, uh, is not life and death for you, then you're not going to pay particular attention to it. And since we live largely segregated lives, there's no way for you to sort of get updates as you go along. You know, this isn't an operating system where overnight, all of a sudden you are uh, brought into alignment with what is necessary today. But sometimes a rupture happens. Now, it's actually been happening for a few years, but it's very clear today that that rupture has taken place. And all of a sudden, you're not just lagging a little bit behind, slightly dated. You are completely behind and being seen in a category that you don't feel is accurate. And as you try to communicate your way out of it, it seems to get worse. And what's happened is you've had the privilege of not doing the work of staying current. What we do is we come in and we help get you current. First off, this is personal work. 
for you to see how that privilege operated and how it allowed you not to think about certain things, how it allowed you not to see certain things. So it's personal work. It's also historical work because there's part of your history that you haven't been taught that you now need to know in order to function in these conversations. And it is conceptual work, both taking away concepts that are now dated and adding concepts that are current. So our primary job is to really bring people into alignment with the times so that leaders can be as big as the moment they find themselves in. So you talked a little bit about the difference between a sociological approach and a psychological approach. Let's, let's come back to that and help, uh, help me understand the difference between those two dynamics and the impact in, uh, in an environment. So the psychological approach, um, and I just, I don't mean it as, their, as the discipline of psychology. I mean it as a metaphor, a metaphor which um, primarily looks at individuals and attitudes. So the idea here is not so much racism, but prejudice. And prejudice exists inside of people. And the way you can tell that people are prejudiced or not prejudiced is by what they say. So if your language is neutral, then you are not prejudiced and you are okay. I used to wear a t-shirt that said, love sees no color. That was seen as an okay thing to wear. Then it's not okay now. Because the fight now is not over prejudice, it's over institutional racism. Just as the attitude lays inside the individual, as organizations have tried to figure out how to diversify, they've tried to bring in one individual at a time. They recruit one at a time. They judge themselves by their ability to attain or to retain one at a time. That's the individualistic psychological model. It is not the only model we've ever used in the country, but that's the one that's been in vogue for, my goodness, 60 years now. The problem is, is that as our understanding evolved from prejudice to institutional racism, our ways of doing inclusion, our ways of doing diversity, our ways of understanding if we were doing the right things did not evolve. So both our techniques and our understandings have lagged behind. What we're trying to bring um, our clients to is an understanding, a sociological understanding of institutional racism. That starts not with the attitude inside the individual, that starts with the presentation of self of the individual, from their outward face to their understanding of concepts to their recognition of history. This is the part we're going after. Because companies are starting to grasp that bringing in one individual and trying to retain one individual isn't working, that you can't do it that way. It's not like you're bringing one student into a school in Little Rock in 1954. That's not what's going on. Individuals cannot be comfortable if they are not socially comfortable. 
So a lot of organizations now are, they're bringing in diversity officers, they're establishing employee resource groups or affinity groups um, as part of their overall diversity plan. And those are certainly good elements to have in an overarching diversity plan, but they're insufficient to actually address the institutional issues that exist. Help us understand a little bit about your, your perspective on that and what you think needs to happen instead or in addition to. It's interesting because there's a model for this that's very similar in the universities. What you got starting in the 60s with some work at Berkeley were a set of ethnic studies programs that effectively operated as diversity officers for the university system. This is a place where you had safe spaces for uh, black and brown and Asian uh, scholars who weren't being hired anywhere else. And from that, you were able over the course of decades to create more positions in more departments. Um, often you also had affinity groups, although they wouldn't have been called that at the time. It just meant that all of these people used to get together and talk about the hardships of being in those spaces by themselves and having no real space of their own. And that was the model that we got through the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s with. I think it's fairly clear that the generation coming up is not going to go along with that vision. They are not going to play the respectability politics long enough to allow another four or five decades for our organizations to become more and more diverse. Just to be clear diversity officers are doing incredible work. They are holding up not only the weight of creating safe spaces for underrepresented groups, but also at the same time trying to train their colleagues and even those that they report to about what this is really all about. Those affinity spaces are lifesavers for so many workers right now. I am not trying to deny what they do. What I am trying to say is that the diversity officer is carrying too much weight for the organization. And I think we all know that. Those affinity groups are doing repair work that gets undone when they get back to their jobs and deal with that organizational structure. And I think we all know that. We know that the thing is, is that the diversity officer has to be everywhere in leadership. And that the spaces for different groups have to be available, not just in some co-playing timeout, twi you know, twice a month for a couple of hours, but they have to become day in and day out all the way throughout the organization. Now, in order for that to happen, white leaders have to understand that their inability to operate in black spaces, in brown spaces, in Asian American spaces, and sometimes in the spaces that women occupy, that that's a deficit that they have that is hurting the vision, the morale, the ability to recruit and retain, and the bottom line of their companies. They have to be hungry to create these spaces all over the organization within the business model. They have to understand that if they have leaders that are not promoting, that cannot have honest conversations, that are shying away from these things, that they are hurting 
the company's image and the company's bottom line. What we're talking about is not just hiring a diversity officer and having a group separate from the business. We are talking about institutionalizing anti-racism throughout the company. So it's a different model. It's not going to happen in a day or in a week. It takes work to get there. We're starting that work. And what does it look like to do that work? I mean, when, when somebody wants to go through this process, what does it look like? You've talked about it being personal, but what does that look like? So, so the problem from the beginning is that there's no reason for those uh, discriminated against groups to trust you. They have some idea of the history that you don't have. They know how these things go. And so the first thing you have to do is establish trust. Here's what won't work. Claiming to be neutral. That won't work. That's out. Claiming that you've always been for anti-racism. If you're going to do that, you better bring the receipts because receipts are required today. So you're going to need those. The other thing that won't work is pointing at people who are differently racist than you pointing at someone who has done physical harm to somebody else. This begins with you not pointing at somebody else. It begins with you and seeing how white privilege operates in your life, seeing how it limits what you know, whose experiences you have access to. Once we uncover that, once you've begun to look at yourself and can say a little bit more about where it is in your life, then we can begin the trust. It's still a little farther down the path. You still need to know some things. You have to understand how to take in black and brown experiences and how to decenter your own experience in order to do it. But that way, lay trust. That trust binds organizations together, has people pulling in the same directions. It gives them a good faith basis to move along, to get things done. It looks like starting with you. And from working with folks that, that you've been working with so far, it's clear that this is hard work. Why is this so hard for people to do? The reason it's so hard to do is um, because it's habit. Institutional racism doesn't care what you mean to do. It's perfectly happy for you to see yourself as a good person. Basically moral, only in the situations where you were put in segregated environments. It builds you to believe that white privilege walked up and put itself into your pocket without you even knowing. It built you so you wouldn't see the decisions you make that keep white supremacy going. And so with all those years behind you, living in a social world where no one else sees it either, all of a sudden the idea is you have to see the privilege that you've been trained not to see. It's not that it's so hard to see privilege. It's hard to unsee what you are already seeing. So much of the work is that work before we even get to the work 
of looking at your privilege. By the time you're actually starting to see your privilege, you've already walked down the path a good bit. And then what is, or how does this sort of institutional racism impact um, black and brown people, other people of color in an organization? What does that look like? What are the, the negative impacts of this systemic racism? Um, how does it manifest with these individuals? So one thing that's happened is that um, what is associated with blackness uh, over the course of the country's history has been fairly negative. And our understandings of, of words sometimes can be thought about as the related words that go around it. And so amongst the things you get with, with black is not smart, is not hardworking, is not cerebral. The qualities of the mind are associated with white and some small groups of non-whites, but black and brown people don't have those same associations. So literally white people are trained not to see the talent that's around them. And so they don't promote the talent they don't see. They don't pay the talent they don't see. They don't necessarily even know how to hang out because they've grown up so segregated themselves that they're not always sure how to approach how to interact. On the other hand, black people mostly have had to deal with white people. Latinos, a lot of Latinos have dealt with white people. Certainly Asian Americans in Silicon Valley where I'm at have had to deal with white people. White people don't always know how to go the other direction. That means that your network connections are weaker because you don't really know that person well enough to recommend them, even if they're in your contact list at all. By the way, residential segregation is the foundation, I would argue, for all of it. So that you live in fairly segregated um, communities, for the most part. Obviously, this isn't everyone. Then you go to schools that aren't more segregated than your neighborhood, but the students at those schools often segregate themselves. So you stay segregated. Certainly the research is that for white people, when they go to college, they're usually going to a more segregated environment than the one in their own neighborhood. And then at least in tech, which is, you know, most of the industry I look at, we're talking about very segregated places that they're going to be in. There's no network connection with black and brown people. There's not a lot of direct knowledge with black and brown people. If you ask white people, do you know a black couple where both partners are black? There's going to be hesitation for a lot of them. They just don't have the experience. Now, you're in the same workspace, but when you want to bring somebody up closer to your level, you're going to bring up somebody you know. That impacts black and brown employees. 
and that has an impact, you know, their current earnings, their current title, um, not getting promoted has an impact on future earnings and future titles, and then their ability to buy a house. And the, the whole economic impact of that is just like a, a set of dominoes flowing. And so, you know, where it starts, whether it's at schools that are underfunded because of the you know, tax the tax base of the houses or what have you. I mean, this is a set of dominoes that just keeps going and it's hard to, to stop them. And nobody has to mean to keep the dominoes going. You're just doing what you're doing. And as long as you've had the privilege not to think about these things, not to see these things, then you have plausible deniability, except there's been this rupture. There's this pressure. And the old ways of not seeing are not taken as neutral or okay, or acceptable. You're either racist or you're anti-racist today. And so now you need to see what you didn't see before. And what you're going to see is your fingers on those dominoes. One of the things that's really interesting, having as I've worked in multiple corporate environments, is um, the sort of notion of culture and the way that we do things here and the way that we operate. And you know, as I've come to learn more about uh, white privilege and uh, the the institutional racism that's there, you know, there's this concept of assimilation that comes fast and furious. And, you know, I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the danger of assimilation in these corporate environments? So just talking about assimilation, because that sort of takes us back to the um, individual model. And one of the things I didn't bring up about that, um, I'll bring up now. So assimilation is the idea that the person we're bringing in or the smaller group that we're bringing in needs to become like us. They have to, they have to think about our comfort and how we're willing to accept their diversity. Now, obviously, that is the rub. They have to make their diversity safe for you, which means they have to change their way of expressing their diversity. It means that authentic representations of who they are have to be translated into what the dominant group can accept, what they can handle. And so in that way, the dominant group adds nominal diversity it can bring in the numbers without actually having to change. If you require assimilation, you don't get the benefits of diversity. And as the world changes, as we get to a more global culture, your inability to have accepted all of the diverse experiences that you might have had is going to hurt your business there's a need for a different model in the times that we're in. I mean, this moment has really pressed us to it, but the way that capitalism was working was going to take us there anyway. Assimilation has to go from one direction to multi-directions. It has to go from this is how they have to change in order to be a part of us to we're all going to have to be able to operate in each other's spaces we're all either going to have to be comfortable expressing who we are and having others express who we are, 
or we're all going to have to assimilate from time to time into each other's areas. Now, I can't say which way those things will go, but the road to get there is pretty similar anyway. If we do the work of decentering our white privileged experience and bringing in other experiences, we're going to learn that it's okay that it's not scary, that there was nothing really particularly uncomfortable about it, and there was great beauty to be had. Assimilation not only has not worked and has decimated groups of people, it's also hurt the dominant culture. It's why they can't get out of where they are right now. It's going to take some work to get there, but it's good work. And there's a reward. The other thing that I am seeing happen, um, and this isn't just in the work environments, but you know, all over Facebook and all kinds of social platforms, you see stories of people who have finally had an encounter with a black person, and they've asked the question. You know, they've asked the questions to try and get understanding, and now all of a sudden, you know, all of these people, whether they're employees in the environment or your washing machine repairman or whoever just happened to stop by that day of a different color, has to bear the weight of our ignorance. What does that do to employees in a corporate environment when the corporation expects them to then educate everybody else? For free. Like, for free. And nothing comes the other way. So imagine that you leave that conversation. Let's say they've done the weight of educating you, which they have to do very carefully right? Because they still have to live with you and they want a job and everything like that. Okay. So now they've helped you. They've told you a couple of things and wow, that was really clarifying. And I feel like we had an honest sort of talk. That's what you go away with. What do they go away with? What do, what, what, like this is a business, right? You want them to act in this particular way. What did they get out of that? Just the knowledge of how much remedial work is necessary and that you won't even do that work yourself. Not only will you put the burden of racism on them, but you will put the burden of educating you about racism on them. This is about your work. This is about you starting to do that work and you starting to take that weight because they have jobs you and your education on race is not their job. So given the state of where everything is right now, um, do you feel hopeful about what's possible and if uh, organizations can overcome the, you know, however many generations of institutional racism? And if so, why? So I'm a sociologist, um, and worse yet, I'm a sociologist of race, you almost never attach the word hopeful to somebody uh, within those categories. So there are certainly limits to that hope. Um, for me, capitalism and racism are intertwined. Um, and so I don't have hopes for the end of racism, although it is possible to 
get rid of anti-black racism, anti-brown racism, and still keep it going. So I, I don't have hopes in those sorts of things. But what I do have hopes about are this. We can be better than the last few generations. We can use the spirit of those employees of color, those black, indigenous people of color, to invigorate our organizations, to make them better. The renewal of spirit we need a lot of times is being carried by those employees. As you bring those, your vision down and begin to include those employees in what you're doing, I think we can do better than the last few generations. I don't know about solving these problems, but there are things we can do. There are contributions we can make. We can even out the weight so that your employees of color are not carrying all of it, all of that emotional work, all of that community work. If you take on that emotional and community work, just take some of that weight off of them, you'll become more integrated into your workplaces as leaders. If you take over some of that emotional work, you will feel a tie, a connection to people in your organization that will make your values and your vision more real. I believe that can be done for organizations that want to do the work. Dismantling racism, one leader and one organization at a time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Out of Privilege podcast. Please subscribe on your podcast platform or sign up on outofprivilege.com to get updated on new episodes when they're available. Let us know what you think and feel free to share on social media.